faithful watched the valiant warrior defeat his last few foes with savage blows from his sword and enter triumphantly into the palace. Do you understand? the interpreter asked. Well, faithful answered, this beautiful palace is obviously a picture of the magnificence of the celestial city. Many wish to enter, but only a few dare to truly commit. The others are scared off by trials, or charmed away by the world's riches and pleasures, by the fear of men or the praise of men. And to truly obtain the rewards and be clothed in glory, as this man is even now being clothed, we must approach our lives as a battle putting to death the deeds and appetites of the flesh, and taking every thought captive. Is that about the size of it? Well put. That is, indeed, the approximate size of it. This man does not shrink back, nor stand at a distance simply waiting to enter the kingdom. Rather, he takes it by force, whatever the cost, whatever wounds he might sustain. They that will have heaven must not be held back by any difficulties they meet, but rather press, crowd, and thrust through all that may stand between their souls and the city. Now, follow me, good faithful. I have one last wonder to show you. The interpreter led him away from the palace, out toward the wilderness. Faithful noticed a very faint trail beneath their feet, as though it had been walked by only a few others, or perhaps none at all for quite some time. The forest grew thicker around them, and more than once the interpreter raised his cane to chop at a vine or sapling that stood in their way. They walked for such a long time, over such a great distance, that Faithful began to wonder if the old man wasn't lost. They had reached the top of a hill and were now descending, when Faithful joked, If you're planning to lead me out into the wilderness and leap upon me and leave me for dead, I have to warn you, it won't be as easy as you might, uh... uh oh... They'd arrived at a clearing, looking down into a wide, stark valley which was absolutely covered in human bones. Skulls, rib cages, femurs, all picked clean by the birds and bleached white by the sun. Please tell me, this is another one of your wonders. High and Silver and Gutcheck Media presents The Pilgrim's Progress. From this world to that which is to come. John Bunyan's Timeless Christian Allegory, as told by Zachary Bartles. Chapter 6. Difficulty For Christian, simply to walk along the path, the most monotonous of tasks, was pure delight. Only now, with his burden gone, did he realize just how heavy and ponderous it had become. Without it, he now sometimes felt like he might actually float away, and only now, stripped of the rags and cleansed of the patina of grime he'd carried about, did he recognize just how needful this all had been. Apparently, he'd been itching continuously for long enough to develop a habit of absent-mindedly scratching his arms, chest, and neck as he walked. He kept catching himself, raising a hand to address this, only to find that the old itch was no longer there. Christian had tarried there, at the place of deliverance, even after the three shining ones had departed. There he'd begun writing a verse about his deliverance, and now, as he walked, he continued composing it in his mind. I came to this point, my sin on my back, not daring to hope I'd be free. My knuckles were white, my soul was pitch black, I felt the weight of it all crushing me. But here at the cross, at the end of the line, the chains started falling away. 
My burden fell off and I straightened my spine. Now my heart cries out just to say, Blessed cross, blessed grave, both empty today. How can this miracle be? I owe everything to the son of the king, who was there put to shame for me. He was there put to shame for me. He hesitated over the words here at the cross at the end of the line, as the Shining One had emphasized that this was not the end but the beginning, and yet it was an end. An end for the man born graceless, and the beginning of a new creation. When he'd finally departed that holy place, Christian had been certain he'd spent hours and hours there, and his immediate impulse upon leaving was to find some place to make camp for the night. But then he noticed the sun still hanging at mid-afternoon and felt a great joy at the prospect of making new progress beyond the gate, now unfettered by his burden and walking downhill to boot. He'd covered perhaps five miles when he came upon a very peculiar sight. Right where the ground leveled out, and not even a stone's throw off the path, were three men sleeping on the ground, their ankles shackled with leg irons. Drawing near to them, Christian's first thought was of the poisonous mushrooms Evangelist had warned him about. Could those also grow on this side of the gate? Lifting his gaze beyond the three men, he saw the wall separating this land from the other, Beelzebub's land, he supposed, and he saw a number of vines and plants spilling over. It was certainly possible. But then these men did not seem drugged. He approached the nearest man and with his thumb gently pushed up one of his eyelids. The pupil looked normal. Perhaps they'd just been drinking the day away. He thought of the words of his precious book, whose pages were now mysteriously gilt with gold since his encounter with the Shining Ones. In that book, a wise man had written, They that tarry long at the wine, they that go to seek mixed wine, look not upon it when it is red and sparkles and flows easily. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like a cobra. Your eyes shall behold strange women, and your heart shall utter perverse things. Indeed, you shall be like one who lies down in the middle of the sea, or falls asleep at the top of a mast. Wise words, but could these men be so drunk in the daytime, along the narrow way? And, and why on earth were their feet shackled? Shaking him by the shoulder, Christian called out, Hey, wake up, sir! Are you all right? The man's eyes fluttered open, struggling to focus on any one thing. He smacked his mouth, frowning, and eventually found Christian's face. What is it? Sir, you were sleeping. Yeah, I was sleeping. The question is, why am I no longer sleeping? Your legs are shackled together, as are theirs. What is going on with you? Uh, my legs? He struggled to lift his lolling head enough to peer down toward his feet. Oh, I suppose they are. <laughs> oh, well, that's something that happens, I suppose. No, it isn't something that just... Who are you? Who am <laughs> My name is Sloth, and these are my mates. That's simple, and over there, snoring away, is presumption. Did you know that they also have leg irons fastened to their ankles? <laughs> what do you know? He peered out at his friends for a moment, then shrugged at Christian and said, The journey of life, right? <laughs> Crazy. Christian kicked at the chains, binding the man's legs, rattling them, and said loudly, You need to get up, sloth. I can help you remove those irons, I think. Where I used to live, I was rather close friends with a blacksmith, and I... What is going on? Presumption moaned. 
I was having a dream about a trifle that never ended. The more I ate, the more there was. And now, he looked at Christian, you. Sloth, who is this fellow? My name is Christian. Sir, did you realize your legs were bound? And what's more, why are you sleeping during the day? Why not? For one thing, it's not safe. It's as if the Dead Sea were under you, a gulf that has no bottom. Don't you know that your enemy stalks about like a roaring lion, deciding whom he should devour? If you awakened to see him, how would you even attempt to run away, chained as you are? You would immediately become prey for his teeth. Arise, all three of you. Let's, let's remove those irons. You, over there. Yeah, wake up. Come on. I'm already awake, Simple said. Thanks to this infernal racket. Nice coat, by the way. <laughs> the others snickered. Are you not hearing me? You're not safe right now. Simple flopped his head from one side to the other and announced, I see no danger. Sloth nodded. Nor do I. Just a little more sleep. Presumption draped an arm over his eyes and said, Yes, yes, every tub must stand on its own bottom, after all. What does that even mean? Christian asked. Sloth waved a hand, dismissively. Oh, it's an old saying. Okay, but again, what does it, it means, Presumption said, annoyed, that all must be self-sufficient. I don't see how that applies here. I mean, you men are obviously not self And they're all asleep. Wow. Well, rest well, I guess. I hope you have more sense in the morning, if you're still alive. Christian returned to the path and kept on his way, thinking how disconcerting it was to encounter men in such danger who cared nothing about the kindness he'd so freely offered them, awakening them, counseling them, even offering to remove their irons. After a while, he consciously put those men out of mind and instead began to thank the king for his own deliverance, for the removal of his burden, for dressing him now in these fine, clean garments, and for how quickly he had been able to cover so very much ground immediately upon setting off from the cross. Then, at the very thought of the cross, he found his pace quickening yet more, and glancing behind him, noticed that the sun seemed to be no further down in the sky than when he'd first encountered those three slumbering fools. When the interpreter did not answer, Faithful looked back, only to see that he was nowhere to be found. Well, that's not what you want, he said to himself. But I can see the narrow way crossing through the midst of these mortal remains. I will simply follow it. He'd reached the very bottom of the valley, the place thickest with bones, when he noticed the armor and weapons mixed in with them. This was clearly the site of a great and terrible battle fought quite some time ago. Faithful looked closer at the sword nearest him. It was finer even than the one he'd left at home, the finest craftsmanship he'd ever seen. Then he thought of the empty sheath still hanging down from his belt and found himself rather conflicted. Was it possible to steal from a dead man? What's more, a man who had been dead so long that his children and grandchildren were undoubtedly dead as well were the weapons of an ancient war, the property of whoever came upon them. He glanced around, looking for the interpreter, suddenly thinking that this may be some sort of test. He did not see him, but he did feel quite silly. If this was indeed a vision, or a wonder, as the interpreter called them, was this sword even real? Then again, Faithful drew back, the breath sucked from his lungs. While he'd been focused on the abandoned weapon, the bones had begun to quiver and rattle, 
Then they were sliding along the sandy soil, making a hideous clacking sound as joints came back together, spines reattaching to skull and ribcage. Long, white arms and legs flopped and clacked together as the pile of bones became a gathering of skeletons, each one grinning as skeletons seemed to do, their empty eye sockets all staring directly at Faithful. His hand went again toward his sword hip and found only the cord of his burden. The blade he'd been coveting was now in the closing hand of a dead warrior. Or was he dead? Sinew and muscle and veins were forming now on his hand and arm. A heart, still and unbeating, was visible in his chest cavity until fluid and flesh began filling in around it. Forcing himself to turn and look around, Faithful confirmed his fear. He was surrounded by such men, their flesh now generating a gray, paperish skin, spreading out to their arms, legs, and heads, where thousands of unseeing, unblinking dead eyes still stared up at him. Hair and beards grew, half-rotten clothing and rusty bits of armor were restored onto these corpses. Turning his attention back to the man at his feet, Faithful let out a gasp. The dead man's face was his own face, looking up at him in a lifeless, silent scream. I know! Faithful called out. I already knew that! I already knew I was dead! I already knew that the city of my birth was full of walking corpses, marking time until their own burials! His hands shook and sweat stung his eyes. He'd been around his share of death and carnage, and the sense of sheer terror, something Faithful had almost never felt, confused him. I knew all this! Show me something else! Christian was composing more songs of praise in his heart, walking briskly along the narrow path when he noticed movement at the wall. He came to a stop and looked over to see two men come tumbling over from the other side. They landed none too gracefully, stood, brushed themselves clean, redonned their hats, and began to approach Christian. Good day! They called out in unison. Good day, Christian echoed, bewildered. I see we are going the same way, one of them said. If you are looking for company along the way, we are known to be very adept conversationalists. I am, anyway, the other said, and the two shared a brief, (laughs) fastuous laugh. My name is Formalist, he said. Hypocrisy, said the other, tipping his hat. I am Christian. They shook hands and began to walk together toward the shining light. What a beautiful day, Hypocrisy said. I do not think we could have chosen a better one for this journey. It is the most beautiful day I have ever experienced, Christian agreed, thinking again of the cross and all that accompanied it. Do you mind if I ask where you men come from and where you're headed? Not at all, Formalist replied. We were both born in the land of vain glory, and we are going for praise at Mount Zion. For praise, you say, to give it or receive it? Either one, said Formalist. A bit of both, I suppose, said Hypocrisy. I see. And why didn't you come in at the gate, at the beginning of the way? After all, it is written, he that comes in not by the door, but climbs in some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. Hypocrisy laughed. Do you have any idea how far it is from vainglory all the way back to that gate? It is very much the consensus of our countrymen that it's just too much trouble. Our practice is and always has been to pop over the wall right back there where we entered. There are even some steps built up on the other side for just that purpose. And you don't fear the lord of the city where you are going will count this as a trespass? 
If taking a little shortcut is a crime, Formalist said, then lock me up. At that, they both descended into more pompous laughter. <laughs> it's just, it, it seems to me that by climbing in as you have, not only do you violate our Lord's revealed will, but you rob yourself of the very benefits of pilgrimage. Don't you fear that you might become rather like a, a painting of fire, devoid of warmth, or like painted flowers with no sweet smell? Or, or better yet, like painted trees which bear no fruit? Formalist rolled his eyes. I see our friend Christian is the master of this simile. <laughs> Don't worry your pious little head about it, my friend. We have our customs and you have yours. And I'll have you know that we could easily produce testimony that would bear witness to our ways going back a thousand years. Witnesses are good indeed, Christian said. But would they stand up in a court of law? I mean, if you were, in fact, charged with trespassing. Hypocrisy gave a bumptious, disdainful snort and said, I'm quite sure that any magistrate worth his salt would admit such a long-standing precedent. Uh, say again, a thousand years. Hmm? Well, to you and I, that is a very ancient practice, but to the lord of that city, it is as a day. You bore me, Christian, Hypocrisy said. What is the point of arguing the law when no offense has been committed? Just look at the result. You came in your way, and we came in ours. But we're all three in, aren't we? If a fourth were to join us now, would he perceive that you were in a better condition? Sure, we tumbled in over the wall, but from childhood all of us in vainglory master the old tuck and roll, so that we may land without so much as soiling our clothing. Speaking of clothing, Formalist said, I suppose they would see the difference in that. We are dressed like gentlemen, after all, while you appear a bit more... gauche, wearing that peculiar coat which I have to assume was given to you by some of your more sympathetic neighbors to hide the shame of your nakedness. At that, the two men laughed again, more <laughs> boorishly than ever. <laughs> you are correct about one thing. This coat on my back was indeed given me to cover my shame and nakedness, and I take it as a token of my master's kindness to me, for I had nothing but rags before. Christian, old boy, I think it may have been a lateral move. <laughs> Feel free to mock me, gentlemen, but by the coat on my back, the mark on my forehead, and the scroll in my hand, the Lord will know me when I arrive. Perhaps you didn't notice these other emblems, busy as you were climbing over the wall like sneak thieves. I walk by the rule of my master, and you too by the rude working of your fancies. Make no mistake, you are counted thieves by the lord of the way. You have come in without his direction, and you will go out without his mercy. At this, the two men made no real answer other than to chuckle nervously, and the three walked along the way in silence for some time, until the two men of vainglory dallied and fell back, leaving Christian to pull ahead, traveling once again on his own, reading from the scroll given him by the Shining Ones, a practice which greatly refreshed his spirit. Faithful stood still among the corpses for a long time, doing his best not to make eye contact with the one at his feet. The eyes were dead, of course, but they were all too familiar. He half expected the interpreter to reappear and open some new aspect of these truths to him. It did seem a bit odd that he hadn't even said goodbye. Then again, he was rather odd himself, in an intriguing sort of way. But he did not appear. Looking ahead, Faithful saw the narrow way stretching out into the distance and the light shining beyond it hovering at the top of a hill. Faithful shuddered. Even the hill resembled a skull, he thought. 
It occurred to him that he might just continue on his way, but for some reason he could not walk away from all these felled warriors, who had gone to the not insignificant trouble of reassembling from a pile of bleached bones, apparently just for him. And so he prayed aloud. Lord, please teach me something hopeful in this bleak and haunting place. You are the giver of life, and I doubt you would bring me here to show me only death. Breathe your life where death reigns. Give me hope for my lifeless soul. A breeze began to blow from where he could not tell, picking up more and more, blowing against Faithful's face and through his hair and filling the valley whirling about. All at once, every dead man took a sudden gasping breath and stood. They were clothed in battle array, hands on their swords, faces pointed to the east toward the celestial city shining on the hill. Then they all drew their swords at once and in unison saluted an approaching figure coming this way down the narrow path. Faithful followed their gaze and saw the interpreter drawing near. I was going to ask you if you understand, but I see that you do. Only then did Faithful realize that his cheeks were streaked with tears. Yes, he said, the Lord who breathed life into Adam and every one of us will breathe new life into all who believe in him, all who truly want it. Do you want it, good Faithful? More than anything, I know you speak the truth. Now, look into the distance. What do you see? Faithful looked again toward the light at the top of the hill and could see something directly in front of it. I see a, a cross. He realized that these men were not saluting the interpreter at all. Rather, every one of them was pointing Faithful to that blessed emblem. Go to it now, the interpreter said. Delay no longer. At the cross, your burden will fall away and you will know the breath of life. That which you have lately felt upon your face will fill your very soul. Life eternal is within your grasp. Godspeed, pilgrim. He stepped aside and Faithful nodded goodbye to his teacher, then ran toward the cross. Christian came to a stop at the foot of a very high hill. Not unlike with the hill legality, he thought it might more properly be called a mountain, but that a tattered old sign erected at the base identified it as the hill difficulty. There he stood, looking up, wondering if he still had the strength within him to make it to the top today. Then he remembered the last time he'd made camp to put off ascending a hill for a similar reason, how he had wasted so much precious time. It was early enough. Not even quite the dinner hour. No, he would not put off so great a task. He would climb this one tonight. Evangelist had told him about the comforts and provisions the king had provided for pilgrims along the way, and how he could always expect to find some place to lay his head at the top of a hill, or at the end of a particularly difficult stretch of road. He took these words to heart now. What have we here? It was formalist, addressing his fellow as the two came up behind Christian. Hmm, the hill difficulty. Hypocrisy read. This looks rather arduous. Oh, you know I don't do arduous. That I do. I mean, I do know that you don't, and of course, neither do I, you know. Still gazing up at the grueling climb ahead of him, Christian asked, What other choice do we have? But to climb or turn back? There are other ways here. Look, Formalist announced, clearing away some overgrown grass from the base of the sign. 
Christian saw two directional arrows affixed to the same stake, and from there he saw two paths diverging, one to either side of the hill, both of them seemingly leading around it. The one pointed to the right identified the road as danger, and the one to the left was called destruction. You can't seriously be entertaining one of these other routes. Why not? Formalist said. They go along level ground. Think about it mathematically. Now, it's a matter of half the circumference of the base of the hill versus its entire height twice. I submit that either of these alternate routes should be shorter, maybe by a third, in addition to being far easier traveling. But our options here are danger, destruction, or difficulty. If you know anything of the Pilgrim Road, you know that difficulty is to be expected. Destruction is the land I'm fleeing, and danger, well, if I can avoid it, I will. Hypocrisy raised an eyebrow. You take things quite literally then, don't you? He laughed derisively and added, It's an actual mountain as opposed to a couple of winding roads. If I go this way round, the, the road called Destruction, for whatever reason, perhaps a Mr. Johannes Destruction named it after himself, I don't know, I would bet you a shilling I'll make it to the other side before you. Look, I have no interest in betting. Oh, count me in, Formalist interjected. I'll take this road to the right and I'll beat both of you. Why, you're on. Hypocrisy waved back at them as he set off on the road destruction, calling out, Have my money ready, you two. Oh, and Christian, enjoy your mountain. <laughs> His irritating falsetto laugh seemed to echo behind him long after both of the other men had disappeared from sight. Without the noise of those two yammering, Christian could now hear the sound of a babbling brook. Having had no drink since the gate, he now realized how parched he was. He followed the sound and discovered a cold, crisp, clear spring of water from which he drank deeply, reviving himself all the more and filling the pilgrim with a determination to climb the hill difficulty. He took off running, once again reminded of his shed burden. The hill was steep and high, though, and after he'd made a good deal of progress, he fell, with no intermediate stage between, to clambering up on his hands and knees fighting hard ground and gravity for every foot of progress. As he was about midway up the hill, the sun was more than halfway down to the horizon, and he thought about how he might be the one in danger or facing destruction if he did not reach the top before dark. There was no way to stop and rest here, steep and rocky as it was. A good deal of effort was required simply to hold on, and so he continued pushing upward as fast as he could manage, asking all the while for help. Although it made the act of climbing a bit more complicated, he pulled the scroll from his breast and gripped it in his hand. This comforted him and seemed to give him the final push he needed to reach the halfway point where he crawled up one last rocky ascent and found himself looking at a pleasant arbor, a beautiful garden alcove, well-tended and inviting. Surely this is one of those places Evangelist told me about, Christian thought a place constructed by the Lord of the Hill for the refreshment of weary pilgrims. Sitting in a soft place, Christian took a moment to admire the coat he'd been given at the cross. It was a fine garment, regardless of what formalist and hypocrisy had said, and he was quite proud to wear it. Then, to relax, Christian opened his scroll and read for a while. But soon his eyes grew heavy, and he re-rolled it, lying back in the soft grass. Whew, I won't sleep while it's still daytime he thought. Not like those three lethargic men I encountered. Just a moment to rest my eyes. I'll set off again in just a few minutes. 
And Christian slept in that place until it was nearly night. And as he slept, the scroll slipped from his hand. Thanks for listening. To support this program and for additional content and perks, visit patreon.com slash pilgrimsprogress. Make sure you don't miss a beat by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, and please take a moment to leave us an honest review. The Pilgrim's Progress, From This World to That Which Is to Come, adapted by Zachary Bartles from John Bunyan's classic manuscript, poem by Aaron Bartles. This text, copyright 2022, Zachary Bartles. This recording, copyright 2022, high and silver, all rights reserved. Produced by Brad Atchison and Zachary Bartles. Additional sound effects and music licensed from Pond5.com. For more audio experiences of my fiction, visit www.zacharybartles.com slash audio. Hi, and Silver. Cut. <laughs>